Our God is a missionary God, and we are His missionary people. You're listening to The Scent Life, the official podcast of the Center for Great Commission Studies at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Then we're facing a crisis of leadership, uh, both in our North American churches and on the international mission field. Today we have a great opportunity uh, to have with us David Mathis, and he's going to talk about uh, the significance of, uh, of leadership in the church and through the church. We're going to talk about his new book, Workers for Your Joy. And so we're excited to have him with us. Welcome to the Scent Life Podcast. Hey, welcome back into the Scent Life studio. We've got Dr. Anna Dobb here. Anna uh, comes with us each week and uh, talks about people that we need to know uh, from missions history. Anna, talk to us this week. Who can we who can we learn about this week? Hey, great to be back. Today we're going to learn about Mary Livingstone. Okay. Uh, so most people know about David Livingstone. They do. And uh, do you you want to give us a background of David Livingstone? Can I put you on the spot? Sure. David Livingstone was a, a missionary <laughs> in Africa and uh, was uh, kind of an explorer and missionary at the same time. I was super famous. In fact, in many ways, uh, was a almost like a rock star personality when he would leave Africa and he would go to uh, go to England, traveled around, spoke, uh, kind of real cast a light on uh, the needs, the missionary needs in Africa. Um, wasn't probably the greatest husband in the world, and I think that's what you're going to talk to us about a little bit. Um, yeah. And uh, but but uh, we owe a whole lot to David Livingstone. We do. Uh, but at the same time, we can look back and learn a whole lot from his life as well. Exactly. Um, one of the things that I try to talk to my students about mm-hmm. when we discuss missions history is recognize that we're imperfect people doing God's mission. That's a great point. And um, the mission itself um, is is a good mission given by God, but sometimes we are sinful humans who do it in a sinful way. Right. Um, and I think, I think, like you say, we have a lot to owe David Livingston. Mm-hmm. Um, he is this explorer who kind of opens up the inside of Africa uh, to... Um, to, to trade mm-hmm. and to um, missionary endeavors. Right. And, and he really, I, I think he genuinely loves the Africans. So I, I never want to, I never want to cast him in a bad light in that sense. Um, however, I do think his, his home life probably had some issues. Sure. Um, and, and one of the things I think we always kind of, you and I have talked about this, mm-hmm. um, his life is complicated. And right. so how do we talk about him? Um, I want to do that by talking about his wife. Sure. I, I think that she's somebody who we don't often hear about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think was really important to the mission. Okay. Um, but but also I think her life's a little tragic yeah. in in some ways. Uh, so Mary was the daughter of missionaries Robert and and Mary Moffat, who um, themselves are very famous. Very famous. And so she is no stranger to missions. Mm-hmm. Um, and she meets David Livingstone when he comes in and and is in that same area, and they get married, and um, they begin begin this life together, mm-hmm. but also uh, I think they really struggled to figure out what does it look like for us to minister together. Right. And so sometimes she would be left at home with her children while her husband would go on these like long exploration mm-hmm. trips, and so she would be by herself taking care of kids mm-hmm. um, in in an area that you know you have all kinds of crazy things, sure. and and especially at that time. I mean, there's there's a letter um, I, I should have written it down. I don't have the exact quote, but it's basically like. She's writing to her husband because she's concerned because she can hear the lions. Mm. And <laughs> we just don't think about those right, kind of stories right, right uh, from over here. But, um, she, you know, she's concerned about her, the safety of herself and her children. 
Um, and then other times he would actually like take her with him. Mm-hmm. But this would be the entire family would be trekking through a jungle. And so she'd have all these little children. Right. She was often, uh, she had ch- like many children back to back. And mm-hmm. so she was often pregnant. Okay. And she'd be traversing through the jungle. or Pregnant through the, little yeah, children. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it was a really hard life. And right. so at some point his mother-in-law kind of intervenes as mm. well and says, hey, we have some concerns. And, uh, and and I think he himself had some concern. I think he genuinely wanted to, to figure out. I think he saw there was a problem. I think he saw there was a problem. And I think he genuinely wanted uh, to figure out a way to do both things. But I think the, the mission ultimately mm. kind of triumphed for him. Right. And uh, so finally, at one point, he sends her back to England. Right. And uh, this is fascinating to me because I hadn't thought about this until I was reading about her. But, like, her family's not there. Right. Her family's back in Africa. Right. Um, and then his family doesn't really introduce her to, the, like, the social circles. Hmm. And so I think she felt really lonely. That's what it seems to, seems to look like, is that she really struggled in, uh, back in England because of just loneliness and not really feeling like she had a place. Okay. And I think she longed to be on the mission field. I think that's where she thought she hmm. was supposed to be. Um, and so finally she returns to Africa and they're going to do this great exploration. But again, she's sick and pregnant. And so uh, she can't, she can't, uh, right. can't go. And later in life, she has kind of a personal moral scandal mm. that is not true. They don't think. Sure. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's kind of like it's historians. It. Yeah, historians discount it. Uh, but there's a scandal that's raised on whether she's faithful to him mm. or not. Um, but again, like I said, they believe that she was faithful right. to him. Uh, and then not long after that, she actually dies of fever. Wow. And so you, you, you have this woman who has given everything for the mission, I really do believe, mm-hmm. um, and, and just I think her entire life struggled with what's my role hmm. here. Um, and I think it's very sad to, to hear how her life ends. Yeah. Um, but I, I, these are the moments when I go back and I say I, I really do believe that the Lord smiles on her faithfulness hmm. um, in the midst of all of this. I think there were lots of issues that we that we see but uh also recognize this is an they're, they're doing something that no one else had done it's a great point and so recognizing that they're trying to figure out what does it look like to have a missionary family in the interior of africa right which is just a hard place to be absolutely you know we often tell the story that we know what we know today because we build it on the shoulders of those who went before us and exactly so these, these pioneers these men and women who serve the lord in difficult times and now we look back and we think, oh, we should do it differently. But we didn't know at that point. And so we do look at people like the Livingstones and the Moffats and others who went before us and say, we can learn from this. And we stand on their shoulders and we're better today as we uh, serve the Lord because of their courage, because of their, their ability. Thanks for, for coming and sharing that story with us. What a great story. Yep, thanks. Appreciate it. Scott, thank you very much for having me. It's a joy to talk to you, brothers. Yeah, you're welcome. We're glad you're here with us today, man. So, Keelan, um, one of the books that you and I have both talked about over the years that meant so much to us uh, was a book written by David Mathis, Habits of Grace. Absolutely. I really enjoyed that book, and I'm very excited about what we get to do today because of it. So, Habits of Grace, just by the way, David, since we've got you on here, um, was for me a pretty formative read. Um, I've the issue of spiritual disciplines, of course, kind of kind of front and center, basic discipleship stuff here. But your pairing of that idea 
with habits in specific, so this idea of habit formation and spiritual disciplines kind of merging together, was for me a, a really helpful way to, to parse out that issue of disciplines. Yeah, I thought the same thing. In fact, it really helped me as I thought not only about my own uh, discipleship, but I remember several years ago we actually did uh, read David's book in uh, in our church and was really transformational for our staff, our elders. And so we're super excited today to have on our podcast David Mathis. David, for those of you who don't know, David serves as the senior teacher and executive editor at DesiringGod.org. He's also a pastor of Cities Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, and an adjunct professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis. Uh, he's got a wife, Megan, four children, and uh, we just learned out that he is uh, a Southerner by root. He's actually a Clemson Tigers fan. So, David, welcome home. <laughs> Thank you very much. Good to be talking to some brothers who, who sound normal to me. <laughs> I'm glad somebody thinks that. That's right. We'll go there with you on the accent. I don't know that I'm going to go there with you on being a Clemson fan, though. Okay, that's all right. I understand that. Yeah, from this side of the table, we're Southeastern Conference fans, but we still like people from Clemson. They're that's close it. enough to the SEC. That's right. That's right. Nobody's perfect. That's right. Hey, David, welcome to The Scent Life. Man, we are so excited about you being here with us. Can you tell us a little bit about about yourself and your ministry, and then we'll we'll shift into talking about your new book, Workers for Your Joy. Well, I went to Furman University, like little sister to Clemson, and while at Furman, I got involved with a ministry called Campus Outreach that ended up bringing me to Minnesota. And uh, in, in Minnesota, one thing we would do very often is I, I ministered to college students, and that's where the, the teaching about habits of grace and spiritual disciplines came from. And I, I thought initially I would be up here in Minnesota for a couple years studying, doing college ministry, and then come back to Southeastern or mm -hmm. Southern Seminary or New Orleans. Uh, but I'm, I met a wife here in Minnesota ah. and got a job here in Minnesota, and I have stayed, and it, it, it's become a home. And, and one of those things that's, uh, that's happened over these years, almost 20 years of being in Minnesota, is being part of Bethlehem College and Seminary as it was founded and growing. And early on, they came to me and said they wanted me to help with one of the classes. And so I had some some big ideas and delusions about how great this would be, maybe systematic theology, or I could teach Christology, or epistle mm -hmm. to the Hebrews. And they said, would you teach the eldership class? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the wind went out of my sails. Like, oh, well, that's, that's really modest. You know, people don't come to seminary thinking about taking the eldership class. But this, that was the need. And that, that's one of the lessons in, in the book is about how important it is in our various spiritual callings that it meet an actual need in the church. You know, spiritual leadership is not foisting our own desires and dreams onto the church. It's God at work in us, in circumstances, in situations to meet actual real life needs in particular places where he's working. And so this was this was the calling for me to do the eldership class. And so for the last 10 years, that has been my focus with Bethlehem College and Seminary, with seminary guys who are training to be pastors and elders, and then talking through these dynamics of what it means to be a leader in the local church and what are some of the various dynamics that the New Testament makes clear are essential for local church leadership. Excellent. So, David, one of the things I want us to do to frame our conversation up front, there's a couple of things. First, for all of our listeners, David's actually been on one of our sister podcasts already talking about this book. And so instead of us just 
doing a rerun, essentially, of that podcast, I want to let all of our, our listeners know you can get an extended explanation uh, of this work and the genesis of it and kind of a parsing out of what it's doing in its core over at our Pastor Matters podcast. Uh, Ron Jour and those guys, they walked through with David the book there. It's an excellent uh, listen, and so I would encourage you to do that. Since we're the missions podcast for the school, we actually asked David to come back so that we can do a bit of a different angle on the text, because I think there's something here for us to unpack in the missions conversation as well. And so that's what we want to do today with David is really think through how do these issues of uh, really the calling for pastoral ministry, what does it look like? What are the qualifications for that work? What does it mean to be an elder or a pastor? How does that apply to the missionary task? I think there's areas of overlap. Uh, Before we get into that, though, David, if you wouldn't mind... um, I want people to go to the other podcast to get the full story, but we need an elevator pitch at least for Workers for Your Joy. So if you could give us kind of a couple of minute flyover of what you're really trying to accomplish in this book, what's the thesis, where are you going, uh, that would frame our conversation, I think. I think one thing that would, uh, the, the overview in some sense is very applicable in a missionary context, in a church planting context in preparing guys for the ministry in a local church context, because the focus of the the book is the timeless, you might even say missionary, Mm. qualifications of the Apostle Paul that he gives in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. Mm. And those are interesting contexts in terms of missionary situations where you have a very newly planted church Mm -hmm. in Crete that he writes to Titus about. And you have a slightly more established church, maybe maybe a decade old or so in Ephesus, a little more established church. And in those two contexts, Paul has a largely overlapping list of qualifications. And so my angle of approach into the topic into the topic of biblical leadership, whether that is among established people, whether that's in a, a church planting context, whether that's in a missionary context, local church leadership, that is transhistorical, transcultural, is going to, 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 to be part of what is brought together by these elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. They're not specific to established churches or even specific to missionary contexts, but, but transcend those contexts. And so that's the, the organizing vantage on the topic of spiritual leadership is what are these timeless virtues, transcultural virtues from the Apostle Paul that the risen Christ means to see in the leaders of local churches, whether missionary or established. Yeah, so I absolutely love the way you frame that. So when we start talking about the work, to understand that Paul is writing in a context here uh, in the scriptures where he gives us all those qualifications for what it means to be a pastor. If we're not careful, we can pull those out of the text maybe and forget the context that he's writing them in. But he's writing to a church plant. And he's talking about the development of new leaders in a context where there wasn't originally a church, but now there is. And so I absolutely think there is space here for our missionary that's on the field. We have a number of missionaries that listen to our podcast. Or for people that are looking to identify leaders in their own church, uh, for them to engage in the material here. Uh, You said it, there is a timelessness to Paul's 
uh, I'm not going to say advice, these qualifications for ministry leadership that are written to us in scriptures, they apply in all times and all places. So the question, I think, is how do we take a good, clear understanding of those qualifications and apply them in identifying that leader for the new church or identifying those that we might raise up to send for the task that's in front of them? Yeah, a, a common conversation in missions today is how quick do you plant? How quick do you move on? What what information needs to be transferred and then move on to the next group? And so it, it's very easy for us to identify the extremes of what is, what's too bare bones? What's too quick? The people aren't ready. They haven't adopted into biblical categories. It's just their own categories that haven't been discipled. And so the church is thin and it's going to fail. And on the other hand, it, it, we all know we don't want to colonize. We, we want to beware those those impulses or somebody comes across a culture and then they become the main leader and the big man for decades on end. We know we don't want that extreme. And so a, a very practical question in missiology is how long? Like what are some flashpoints to pursue to know that my investment as a cross-cultural Christian uh, is done here and now the gospel can run and take uh, in the native soil here? And a few really key flashpoints are, one, throughout the New Testament, we see again and again that local church situations have a plurality of leaders in place. One way to say it is Jesus Christ, as the chief shepherd, gets the glory of being the only singular leader in the New Testament. And even the apostles below him are plural. In every instance that we find in local churches, there's a, it's a plurality of leaders. So this is an important thing to not just get there and raise up one guy and leave it with one guy, but seek to find a, a group, a plurality, a team with which to invest. And then the Apostle Paul says very frankly to Timothy in his final letter, Timothy, the things that you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there is a there's a, a teaching of that I think is part of the elders' task, part of the missionaries' task, that one of the things the missionaries are doing is not just teaching the people, but also raising up other teachers. And so a, a, a very clear target, I think, from a Pauline perspective, from a New Testament perspective, is the discipling or the raising up or the investing in multiple leaders who will have conform their hearts, their minds, their lives significantly enough to the risen Christ that they might then be self-producing people in that cultural context. And that team dynamic is very important, that you're not just leaving it to one or two, but a, a team that is self-perpetuating that would signal, all right, the work of the missionary here is done, you can move on, and we'll spread the gospel here. Fantastic. Uh, so, as we look at your book here, you've got kind of 15 virtues that you've laid out. They're, they're across these three categories, just so that people kind of have a bit of a frame here. Uh, the categories you use, humble, whole, and honored, or honorable. Um, I, I love the way you've organized the material, but so for our listener, you've got these kind of 15 different aspects that are necessary for somebody that perhaps we'd identify to do leadership work. Um, how do you feel like this book maybe can be a practical tool? So think with me two categories here. Uh, here we are in North America. I'm a local church pastor. I'm a leader in my church here. 
And I know that it's our responsibility to raise up our next missionary or church planter. Uh, And the work that the missionary is going to go do will eventually have them identifying people who would be potential elders. Or if they're going to go plant a church and pastor it here in the States, they themselves will wind up being in that role. So how do I use this book well for that? Or category two here, I am a missionary that's on the field. I'm involved in the process of making new disciples, uh, healthy church formation, and then leadership development within that context. How does this book help that person? Yeah, well, maybe, so maybe I can give you a, uh, a grouping of three and then a grouping of two. Hmm. Uh, the grouping of three would be the one you referenced there about humbled, whole, and honorable. And uh, d- from these 10 plus years of doing this eldership class at Bethlehem College and Seminary, I've tried to think over how do I make this list of 15 to 18 virtues? If you put the Titus and Timothy list together, they are strikingly overlapping. It's right. essentially the same thing with a few little differences for the differences of a newer context in Crete and a more established context in Ephesus. And so you've got, you get the same basic 15 to 18 or so virtues, but that's a long list to, to keep in your mind. And I think part of the reason that Habits of Grace was helpful to some people is because instead of a list of 15 to 20 spiritual disciplines, we try to press in and see what are some th- what are some big categories of things that right. should always be operative in the Christian life. And so I want to do a similar thing with this project is think of these 15 to 18 virtues, what are, what are some big categories here? And so my effort to try to get at those big categories, just for the sake of memorability, and if you're looking at someone, evaluating others, praying for someone, praying for their humility, for their wholeness, for them to be honorable, that gets at these three dynamics of part of the list relates to the man before his God. You know, mm. has he been humbled <laughs> sufficiently before his God? Uh, does he own his creatureliness, own that he is an a uh, receptor. He's one who's received Christ's redemption. And in that humility, is there a a willingness to teach God's word, teach Christ's word and not teach himself and not be innovative in the ministry, but see himself as basically a steward of Christ's teachings in the Old Testament scriptures, in the New Testament apostles to teach the church. So there's that, that sense of first, the man before his God is humbled. Then second, there's a whole category of stuff. We often emphasize this when we talk about uh, its character over competency. When we talk about the character, we're often getting at integrity or wholeness, that the man is the, he's the same man in private that he is in public. It relates to Mm self-control. It relates to him being a one-woman man. It relates to how he handles his money, how he handles alcohol how he manages his own household well. That's an elder attribute. And so that wholeness would be a second category. The third then, and this is probably a little surprising sometimes uh, because it's a public office. And so the nature of these qualifications means there are public dynamics that are irreducible. To be a leader in the church is not the same as to be a Christian. You become a Christian, you are justified by faith alone. You don't do anything to deserve that. There is a different category between being a Christian saved by grace and then the kind of life that one would live to be a, a public leader. You know, there's some, there is some sanctification that happens. There's some, some tread on the tires to be a public leader. And so there's various attributes of being respectable, being above reproach, 
being hospitable, which that really relates to missions and the kind of outward-oriented heart that is needed in church planting and missions. How one bears himself in public is part of the nature of public office. And so that's what we're getting at with the category of of honorable. So that's that's a list of three to keep in mind, humbled, whole, honorable. And the two, very simply and quickly, that I'd want to emphasize is teaching and sober-mindedness, because mm. the New Testament's very clear that the two main tasks of local church leaders in a missionary context, in an established context, is local church pastor-elder leaders are teachers and their governors. And in different polities, the governing will function uh, one way or another, but essentially to be a leader is to actually lead. (laughs) Whether you call that governing or ruling or leadership, there's there's the leading function where there's decisions that the pastors are together making to help lead the church to its next place. And the New Testament's very clear that to be a leader, Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God is to be a teacher. Christianity is a teaching faith, and the leaders of the faith in healthy contexts, healthy churches, will be those who are teachers, who want to teach. And so what we're looking for in the pastoral office, which is different than the deacon office, mm. there's no demand that deacons be teachers. Right. But there is a very clear demand that pastor, elder, overseers, that lead office in the church, be teachers. And so two things that we're looking for in men toward the pastoral office is ability to teach, kind of an, an inclination and orientation and effectiveness and an equipping for teaching. And then the kind of men with the spiritual sober mindedness, the kind of a spiritual IQ that would help make wise decisions, that would help navigate church life for the congregation in its particular season. That's great, man. We, what I mean, I really like the way you've, you've broken those down. Let me ask you a, a kind of a, a follow-up question to that as we think about uh, missions and we think about uh, this multiplication setup that you, you have referred to. So obviously the, the book lays out uh, the qualifications for an elder, but there is this step before that where those of us who do serve as elders in the church and those of us who do serve in a leadership capacity also have the responsibility of raising up those behind us, mentorship, calling out the called, um, discipleship. How could how does the concept of um, of of your book how does it shape the way perhaps those of us who already serve as elders in our church should view the young men who are coming up behind us and what role do we have? Uh, as we as we lean in and try to shape again the next generation of leaders to make sure that there's this long-standing um, uh, group of people who fit these categories. Right, well, that's a great question, and I I want to, so to speak, bake that in hmm. in such a major way. I, I deal with it at the very beginning of the book, so it, it's not right. its own chapter, and it's not late in the book. In the very introduction. I talk about 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, right. where Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you invest yourself in other men who will be able to teach others also. And it's it's very easy. Go back to the Great Commission and you track. I mean, what did Jesus do? Matthew 4, 19, Peter, James, John, follow me. Right. I'll make you fishers of men. And so the, the lion's share of his life, he gave to these 12 guys. And then it sounds like three in particular where he really invested himself so much so that the leaders in Jerusalem could tell in Acts 4, these men are unstudied, and yet we can tell they have been with Jesus. 
So not only did Jesus teach the masses, but he invested himself in depth in his 12 such that they could continue on his work when he was done. So for three years, he made this major investment in their lives. And then the Apostle Paul, we see it again and again in Acts, in his letters, that he has his junior associates with him. He's got his Titus, he's got his Timothy, he's got his Silas. They're the younger men that were around Paul that were being raised up to lead in their own right. And this is the nature of, in one sense, healthy human life. Mm. But we want to make it explicit in the context of the church and of the church's mission and in the church's calling that just as Jesus invested himself in his men in a way that was, I think we got to say, it was imitable. It was an example for us. Yeah, right. There are some things unique about the life of Christ that are not examples for us directly. Certainly. We don't die on the cross for others. Now, we do figuratively. We do sacrifice ourselves, but we do not absorb God's wrath on their behalf. There's uniquenesses to the life of Christ, but one aspect of Christ's life that is eminently imitable is that he invested himself at depth in a few men, and that's in Paul's life. That's a command to Timothy, and so I want to I bake that in from the very beginning that uh, a very basic part of spiritual leadership is not only thinking how we might feed and instruct the masses— but how might we, in that process, do some significant investment in the next generation of leaders? I mean, it, it is a mark of good leadership that the leaders raise up leaders better than them yep, <laughs> to fill their point. slots. Not that they get their place on the bus and they ride it out until the ripe old age when they have to retire, but that they are able to invest in men who would then be ready to fill those slots and that the older guys can move to the backseat of the bus and see how God would lead them in other missionary or church planting efforts or have others ready to be sent out to do the expanding work of the church. So very much related to the nature of our gospel and our church as increasing and growing as an organism that grows either outward in evangelism, in hospitality, in missions, is that the pastor elders themselves embody that and live that in raising up new leaders. Perfect. David, I absolutely love the way you phrased that. Uh, in fact, I, I noted the shout out to Coleman's Master Plan of Evangelism in the book, <laughs> and I, I feel that's kind of built, uh, you said you baked it in, and I think that's right, uh, that it's baked into that idea. There's this withness, essentially, as we're working with and discipling and raising up these these future uh, pastors. Uh, I think I think that's I think that comes through, and so I appreciate the way you've you've framed that. Uh, I want to say thank you, by the way, for your time with us today. You've uh, I think there's a ton of stuff here for people to think through. I want us to say again that I value for the missions conversation books mm. on what it means to be a good pastor. I right. think there's a space there that we really need to think through. I want our missions leaders and our missionaries thinking through the fact that a core piece of the missionary task is in fact identifying those that would be leaders in the church. And so this is a central issue for us. So thank you very much for this work. Uh, I want to say to our audience as well, to those who are listening, if you are one of the first five people who uh, email us, so email us at cgcs at sebts.edu, and we will give you a copy of David's book. Uh, I really want to get this into the hands of some people, so we're going to do that if you'll, if you'll reach out to us. And once again, David, thank you so much for your time today. Keelan, Scott, thank you, brothers. Good to talk to you. You too, brother.
Hey, so welcome back to our uh, segment out of the tower. Dr. George Robinson's here, and uh, we kind of let the cat out of the bag last session that we're actually this season equipping people to be church planters. Absolutely. So what's the next uh, next step in church planting process? So framing this whole thing up using the core missionary task, entry evangelism, uh, disciple-making, gathering together, leadership development, partnership, and exit. So we've worked through tools to use in each of those aspects uh, the last time we showed, uh, introduced a tool called the three-thirds process that right. can be used both as a disciple-making strategy and as a format for when you gather together or when you're doing church, right? And so this week we're going to talk through uh, another one that kind of crosses the line between disciple-making and gathering, and okay. that is biblical accountability, uh, establishing biblical accountability uh, between one another. Sure, let's hear about it. So uh, the way that I like to train, I've got symbols that I always, always write on the board or whatever, and those symbols carry across. And so for this um, biblical accountability, I talk to people about uh, you need to uh, look at the up, the down, the in, and the out. Okay. And so uh, just picture the arrow pointing up. Mm-hmm. So up, the first question when you're establishing biblical accountability is to ask a person, okay, what was your high over the previous week? Mm-hmm. So since we gathered together last time, what was your God moment? Where did God show up in your life that you want to give praise and, and express gratitude for? Great. And then we stop and we pray and give thanks to God for however he showed up in their life. The down is uh, where's a low point mm-hmm. in your life right now? Where's a place where you really need for God to mm-hmm. show up? And so the high and the low uh, play off of one another. The low is a point of intercession. Now I know how to pray for and to minister to you. And then the N is tell me about your spiritual formation, or Mm. in less uh, technical terms, uh, tell me about your abiding with Christ. What does your relationship rhythms look like over the previous week Mm. uh, since we got together last time? What are you doing? What scriptures are you studying um, what's been happening in your own personal spiritual formation. And then the arrows out are going to be, uh, tell me about an opportunity you've had to bear witness to Christ over the previous mm. week. So up, down, in, out, or highs, lows, spiritual formation, and evangelism. What a great tool. You know, we often talk about accountability. Who's your accountability partner, accountability in relationships, and really accountability in a Christian group is necessary and important as we grow together. And These four uh, concepts or errors really give us a handle on how we can help people in their ongoing relationship with Christ, but also how we can do it together. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I use the word biblical to qualify accountability because right. accountability is not just uh, somebody coming together and, and confessing the same sin over and over again. Biblical accountability establishes that the Scripture itself is what we together mm. are accountable to. What has God revealed to us? Mm. And so what that means is is that even if I've been walking with Christ for 30 years and you've been walking with Christ for one year, that when we're in biblical accountability, we're both living our lives yeah. in submission to what God's revealed to us within the Scriptures. And so what it does is it leverages and begins to form people as leaders mm. because we're searching the Scriptures for one another to see how to minister to our highs, lows, uh, to our ins and our outs. That's great, great. What a great concept. Appreciate you sharing that with us this week. You bet. 